0: Dr. Tim Jordan back with you with a new podcast, Raising Daughters, a new episode, I should say. I've been doing a lot of reading lately. I I read all the time, but my last podcast, or one of the last ones, was about, is it really necessary to go to college? I've done a lot of reading about that. And I also started reading in the last several weeks a bunch of articles about youth sports and I've, I've had this feeling for a while now, especially the last 10, 20 years, that's really gone off the rails. I mean, it's nutty what parents are, are going through to try and give their kids an edge to keep their kids competitive, if you will. And so I thought I would do this podcast today about uh, when and why youth sports kind of went off the rails, went off the deep end. And I think that youth sports have changed a lot over the last 120 years uh, since it began. Um, I, think, I think sports have gotten a lot more competitive. Youth sports have gotten more cutthroat amongst kids and parents. There's been a dramatic rise in overuse injuries in kids, and especially in girls. I think there's been an increase, not just I don't think, there's been research that shows there's an increase in burnout, anxiety around sports. Uh, there's this pressure to hyper-specialize at earlier and earlier ages. It's become very expensive. I'll talk about the money part in a little bit. Very expensive and very time consuming. And I think it leaves behind a lot of middle and lower middle class kids who can't afford it, can't afford to keep up, if you will. I've seen a lot of kids and, and families where the, the whole sports thing it takes over their whole family's life. Where there are tournaments literally every weekend all summer, traveling around, there's no time for a family vacation. It burns me when sometimes girls will say they want to come to my summer camp for a week and they can't come because their coach said they can't miss a practice or a game. These kids' lives get consumed. So youth sports has become very commercialized, privatized. And the latest figures I've seen is that it's become a $19.2 billion business. There's the catch, right? This is not about what's good for kids. This is about money. It's not just about money, but that's become a big part of it. There's actually been a 90% increase in spending in youth sports in the last 10 years. A 90% increase in the last 10 years. So to me, it kind of begs the question, what's the end goal here? When is enough enough? Where's the line? Shouldn't we be drawing a line between what is normal and healthy for our kids versus what is nutty and what is too much? And who is this really all about? Is this really about the kids? About their needs? Is it about parents? Or is it become more about business? So as Julie Andrews said in The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning. And so I thought I would retrace a little bit the history of youth sports in this country, in the United States. Because it's not always been this way. Starting back in the early 1900s, it would have been uh, more like lower class kids who were competing under non-parental adult supervision, while their upper class friends were participating in non-competitive activities, activities like dancing and music lessons, often in their own homes. So at the turn of the century, the 20th century, this, the youth sports thing wasn't even around. Kids tournaments, especially athletic ones, came first to poor kids, often immigrant kids who were living in the big cities. Urban reformers in the early 1900s were concerned with these poor little immigrant boys who, because of the overcrowding in the cities and the tenements, they're often left alone in the streets, running around, wild, if you will. And so uh, reformers saw sports leagues as a way to kind of keep these underprivileged boys off the streets and out of trouble. So they started establishing parks and playgrounds, some spaces for kids to, to go and play. So they weren't like on the streets. Now, adults back then, like they would now, didn't really trust their boys to play without supervision. So, league play soon became organized sport. And they thought thought it was a way to teach American values. That's in parentheses. American values like respect, cooperation, uh, working hard, respect for authority. They were trying to prepare kids for this new industrial society that that needed physical laborers. Just like schools around the same time at the turn of the centuries were switching to a factory model. Where the the bell rings and you move to another class. They were preparing kids to work in factories. And they were preparing kids with these sports to become laborers in in an industrial society marketplace. Competitive athletic leagues grew across our country a lot through the 1920s. Now, once once the end of the 20s and the early 30s came, because of the Depression, those leagues suffered financially. And then fee-based groups, things like the YMCA, they kind of rose up to kind of fill the void. And this new kind of pay-to-play model tended to exclude kids whose families couldn't afford the fees. And around the same time, a more athletic organizations started to pop up, such as Pop Warner Football, which was established in 1929. Part of it, again, was about getting kids off the streets. They had less jobs because of the depression. Everybody lost their jobs, including young people. Um, and also around that time, and as it got into the late 30s and the 40s, a lot of physical education professionals and doctors They called the organized focus on competition in sports. They they saw that as being harmful to kids. They also said that there is too much emphasis on athletic talent at at much too young of an age, which is what a lot of people are saying today. As a result, back in the 30s and 40s, most organized competition left the public elementary school systems and it became more uh, things that people did uh, with private organizations. For instance, in 1939, Little League Baseball um, uh, was created. They held their first World Series in 1949, about 10 years later. Excuse me. And about 10 years after that, in 1959, Little League sponsored 5,000 leagues. So it went from its onset in 1939 to about 5,000 leagues in 1959. So as this model of kids' membership in national league organizations developed, the fees to play and compete increased and increased and increased. And with the success of these fee-based national programs, it became more and more difficult to sustain free programs. So they started going out of vogue. Another thing that that came around our history in the 1960s was the self-esteem movement. It started to take hold in the schools and our parenting its focus was on building confidence and talent, without negativity, no comparison between kids. Everybody gets a trophy. You, you've heard all that before. Um, but parents, on the one hand, bought that, but they also wanted more competitive opportunities for their kids, and they're willing to pay for it. So the 1960s also gave rise to another factor, which was a growing competition over college admissions campuses in the 60s were busting uh, uh, with baby boom generation students and the top schools couldn't meet the demand which meant that not all students would get into college and there's a lot of parents who got very anxious is my kid gonna make it so they started focusing on athletics as a way by which their kids could gain admission to these top quality universities In the 1970s, 1980s, after the boomer kind of generation had their fill, uh, families became more competitive again uh, with after after uh, excuse me after school activities for kids. They started to develop more things, evolved more, intensified, particularly in the 1990s. For example, in 1995, the AAU Amateur Athletic Union sponsored about a hundred national championships for youth athletes. Ten years later, that number had grown to 250 national championships for youth athletes. And the price, the price of college has been going up and up and up. Uh, the cost of a of a um, public in-state uh, four-year school today is somewhere in the early to mid 20,000s, uh, 20, maybe 22, 25,000. It's close to 40,000 40, at least at public out-of-state four-year schools. If you go to a private not not for profit four-year school, it's going to cost you in the 50s or 60,000. And a lot of people have written that there may be no single factor driving the professionalization of youth sports more than this dream of a free college getting college tuition. It's disturbing to me that this youth sports thing has become more like the pros at earlier and early ages. It's like we're developing these little professionals. The most competitive teams vie for talent. They're traveling to national tournaments. Um, It's interesting, too, that at the same time that that's increasing, things like little league participation is down. Little league participation is down about 20% from, from the year 2000 when it peaked. These local you know, less competitive leagues have been nudged aside by these private traveling club elite teams. Yet the number of kids involved in team sports has been falling. In 2018, 38% of kids aged 6 to 12 played some organized sport on a regular basis, and that was down from 45% in 2008, mainly due to increasing costs, the time commitment, and the hyper-competitive nature of many sports. And that includes what I hear from girls a lot and their parents, which is nutty coaches. Coaches who are over the top. Coaches who think too much about winning and not enough about development. The uh, U.S. youth sports economy uh, includes uh, travel, uh, private coaching, uh, apps that organize leagues and, and live stream games. Like I said before, it's now a 19.2 billion dollar business, 19.2 billion dollars a year business. So parents are paying a lot of money for that. It, it, it can go anywhere from you know thousand dollars to twelve thousand dollars or more to you to have your kids be in these sports. I hate that it starts so early. I remember one of my relatives. I went to see her son's soccer game when he was in kindergarten. And at that, yeah, he was going to a uh, Catholic grade school. And at that time, this was about mm, 15 years ago, I guess. At that time, as kindergartners, the boys and the girls uh, played together. And it was fun, it, was not, it wasn't that competitive. Uh, the kids were just mixed up, however. What was fascinating and disturbing <laughs> was the next year, when I went to see this same boy play in first grade, Uh, the boys and girls were separated. That's not what was disturbing. What was disturbing was there were two boy teams and two girl teams, and it was very clear that the two teams were divided by talent. So all the quote-unquote good athletes and the best soccer players were on one team, and somehow, magically, all the lesser talented players were on the other team. This is first grade already. We were dividing them based upon who's the best kids. Um, I counsel girls and me girls all the time now who are being coached or excuse me, being courted as middle schoolers by college coaches in middle school, sometimes earlier. Competitive high school teams are scouting the club ranks. You know, there's there's so much. Uh, pilfering of kids going from this school to that school. They're recruited in high school. In some places, travel teams have have, uh, supplanted high school squads as a priority for a lot of the top players. They were being told a couple years ago that they had to choose. They couldn't play both, and many of them have chosen the club ranks. Travel teams have supplanted high school squads as a priority kids learn that early on it's important to attend these tournaments because there's going to be scouts there there's going to be college coaches there they go to these showcase events and this is not high school seniors this is like sixth graders seventh graders eighth graders the more socially savvy parents social social media savvy parents that is not are now building twitter instagram accounts Feeds around their young athletes, trying to again gain attention because of college coaches. I remember a couple of years ago, maybe it's more than that, maybe three or four years ago, I was uh, I turned on the TV set. I think it was an HBO show. It was it was by Brian Gumble, some kind of a sports show he had every week, and it, it caught my eye because he's they said something about the show today was going to be on youth sports. So I sat down to watch it, and that's why when, when I first started learning about the money part. And it's true today that municipalities, small towns that once vied for minor league teams are now vying for youth sports teams to boost their local economies. It's interesting, on in that show, they, uh, he followed a couple of families. One of the families had a boy and a girl. I believe the girl was probably about 13. I think the boy's 10 or 11. And the boy was on a, a little league baseball team. And I'll never forget this. They showed them uh, in a city. I can't remember where it was. I think it was somewhere in the southeast. And it was the national championship game for that age level. National title. That's what they were going for. And these kids were jacked up. And their parents were jacked up. And their coaches were jacked up. They showed the coaches with these kids huddled around them. And they were they weren't yelling, but they were so intense. Like, this is it. This is the game. And, of course, they're being filmed for ESPN. So they play this game. and I'll never forget the last inning. It was probably the seventh inning because I think youth Little League Baseball only goes seven innings. Anyway, this boy was on second base. And the next kid got a hit. He comes around third. He goes home. He slides in safe. His team wins the national championship. The kids go crazy. The parents go crazy. The coaches go crazy. Everybody's <laughs> jumping around. They lift the kid up on their shoulders. They carry him off. And as soon as all the parents and the kids drove off after, after the game, somebody went over to the sign that said National Championship, Little League. And they took the sign and they, and they slid it off and they were taking it to another event because there was going to be a dozen or 20 of these events around the country that summer. That wasn't the National Championship game. It was one of many. But they had sort of put it out there as this is it. And everybody got so uh, you know, mesmerized by that. And it's just a game. It's just about making more money. These small towns are issuing bonds to create these lavish complexes that they hope will lure uh, these kids and their families. Youth sports is being privatized. And across the United States, the rise in all these travel teams and the tournaments has led to the kind of facilities arms race that once was reserved for big colleges and the pros. Cities and towns are using tax money to build or incentivize play and stay mega complexes. And they're betting that the influx of visitors will will increase the local economy. Because not only will will the kids come and play baseball or soccer or whatever, but they bring mom and dad and brother and sister and grandma and grandpa and they stay for two or three or four days and there's your money making. So a lot of people are making a lot of money on youth sports. And that's one of the things that's driving it. The other thing I've noticed uh, as one of the consequences of this intensification of youth sports is that there's a growing body of research that shows that intense uh, early specialization in one sport increases the risk of injury, burnout, and depression. There was a uh, I'm sorry, a 2016 study by the Journal of Family Relations that found that the more money families pour into youth sports, the more pressure their kids feel, and the less they enjoy the sport, and, and they feel committed, and the less commitment they feel to their sport. More money meant more pressure, which meant less enjoyment and less fulfillment. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, burnout, anxiety, depression, and attrition are increased in early specializers. And the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons all say uh, that delaying, delaying specialization in most cases until at least late adolescence increases the likelihood of, of being successful in athletics. Devotion to a single sport uh, is counterproductive to reaching the Holy Grail, which is a college scholarship. I saw a survey from, I think, a year ago of 296 NCAA Division I male and female athletes. This is a survey done through UCLA. and They discovered that 88% of their college athletes played an average of two to three sports as kids. They didn't specialize when they were little kids, that most of them played lots of sports. I read a book last year called Range, which said the same thing, that people who are at the top of their fields, whether you're talking about uh, professional soccer players or people who are in symphony orchestras or people who are painters or whatever their, their craft, that that those people didn't just do one thing, that most professional athletes played a lot of sports when they were growing up. People who are a symphony orchestra playing the violin play two or three or four instruments. It's a range of experiences that, that helps kids to become better at what they're doing. So all this, I think, also points to a fear that I think has been planted in our parents starting about 15, 20 years ago. The fear that their kids are going to get behind. I hear it. I see it all the time. I've talked about that on a podcast or two in the past. And the fear is that it's kind of like back in the 50s when we used to talk about keeping up with the Joneses because there was this anxiety about, oh gosh, my neighbor just got a new washing machine or a new appliance. So therefore you would run out and get the same thing. It was like this keeping up with the Joneses. Today it's not about keeping up with the Joneses and appliances because everybody has stuff. Today it's become more about keeping up with the Joneses' children. Because you notice that their kids across the street, the neighborhood kids, are going to three hockey camps this summer. They're getting professional coaches. They join this uh, ultra-competitive uh, travel league. And parents start saying, oh, my God, my kid's going to get behind. He's not going to be able to keep up. He's not going to be able to make his high school team. If he can't make his high school team, he's not going to be able to make, a, make it into college and, and get a, a, and play in college. And so this anxiety is ratchets ratchets up parents start wondering am am i helping my kids keep up i need to give my kid an edge i need to give my kid a leg up in the competition and the end goal is what a college scholarship a full ride is that really what we're all pointing towards let me give you some facts about kids who play high school sports and kids who play college sports, and kids who become professionals. Only about somewhere between 2 to 4% of high school athletes compete at the NCAA level. And only about 1% of high school athletes receive an athletic scholarship. Out of all those, out of all those kids who are playing in high school, the number of them who are going to make it to the professional level is 003 to 0.5% less than 1% of those kids are going to become a professional. Most students who get a scholarship, even for uh, for athletics, most of them are not getting full rides. Majority of kids on athletic scholarships get about less than $1,000 per year. Less than 10% of athletes in college are on a full ride. Now, you hear about these kids who are on this... Uh, you know on playing football at alabama or whatever and and they and a lot of those guys are but but uh, but most do not and those numbers include uh, young people who are playing in division one division two and division three less than 10 percent are on a full ride so i think that the bottom line is you actually have a better chance of getting more money for college by getting good grades and test scores than by being a good athlete and, or you could take that money that you're that six, eight, ten, twelve thousand dollars a year and put in the bank and let it draw interest for college because most of your kids are not going to get a college scholarship. I think a lot of middle class, lower middle class, and lower class kids, I think they're being priced out because it's so expensive to do these travel leagues. It's also uh, sad that there are some kids who don't develop when they're six or eight. They're, they're late bloomers. They don't show this talent and this development at a young age. And so they're discouraged from participating in organized sports. And they're already shunted to the lesser leagues. So they get, have less games, poor coaching, blah, blah, blah. And so that really puts them at a disadvantage. So. That's the history of what's been happening with youth sports, at least sort of a summary of that. And so I think we've, we've got to step back from ourselves as parents, as a culture, and say, what are we doing? What is the end result we're looking for? Is our, whole, our, whole, our child's whole childhood supposed to be about getting a college scholarship? Is that what it's about? Pushing kids to become professional athletes, little professionals, because that's what it seems like, with all the time, energy, money invested. I think we need to uh, have a big change in youth sports. We need to get the adults out of out of there, the money out of there, and make it what's supposed to be, which is it's supposed to be number one about fun. It's supposed to be about physical activity, physical exercise. There are some lessons that you can learn playing sports, although maybe not as much as you think. I'm going to do a podcast soon about, you know, do sports really build character? Because I've read a bunch of research that says, eh, that's something that we just assume is true, but maybe it's not. Depends a lot on the context. I'm going to talk about that in a different podcast. I like sports. I played sports my whole life. My kids played sports. But there's the difference between playing on a baseball team this summer and having 20 games and having 60 to 80 games and being out of town, you know, five or six or seven weekends of the summer playing on these travel leagues. There's a huge difference. You can learn a lot of great lessons, I think, from sports by playing 15 or 20 games in the summer. You don't need to play 60 or 80 games to learn the lessons from sports. I want parents to take back their family time. Take back your lives. Gosh, it's so time-consuming. Now, is it fun to go on a tournament, go out of town, uh, hang out with your buddies, uh, get to know some of the families? Yes, I, I get that part of it. But not being at tournaments year-round. Not the early specialization. we got to stop that for sure. The overuse injuries. I, I talked to so many girls who are burned out from their sports because they started the early specialization too early. They're playing the same sport 12 months of the year. There's no breaks and they're, other than their body. Their body starts breaking down. I think we shouldn't start dividing kids into the haves and the have-nots, the good kids and the not-so-great athletes. I don't think that should happen until middle school or beyond. I think a lot of the kids who aren't that good at sports start weeding themselves out by the time they're in 6th, 7th, 8th grade anyway. But I think it's be good to mix them up. They learn from each other. Make it about friendships and fun as opposed to winning national championships. We need to make sure that there's lots of uh, low-cost options for for kids. I think we need to take some, some time to think about how do we want to spend our time. When our kids were younger, we used to have family meetings once a week. You've probably heard me say that before and one of the things we decided as a family was we decided one sport a season because we had three kids and we didn't want to be spending our whole life driving around to games and tournaments and all that and our kids wanted that too because they they valued their downtime they valued their free time they want some time to hang out in the neighborhood and hang out with their buddies so that was a family decision so that when the time came, for instance, if like my, one of my son, both my sons played baseball in the in the summer, well, then, you know, in, in August or so, then there was the fall leagues. But oops, but they're also playing soccer or my one son played hockey. So so when they said, I want to play in the fall league, we we're like, what do we decide as a family? We said it was important to have downtime. We decided one sport a season. So, no, we're not playing both. And plus, you played baseball this summer. So it'd be good to do something different. Those are conscious choices I want each and every parent listening to this podcast to make. Do not get sucked into this keeping up with the Joneses children rat race. Ugh, It's so hard. I've talked to parents all over this country. I've talked to parents in lots of places. I get it. I started to feel that pressure a little bit. My kids are in their 30s, so it wasn't as full force back then. But I felt it, that, that sense of, gosh, are my kids going to get behind. But What I decided was that's not what their life is going to be defined by. Are they making the best team? Are they going to get a college scholarship? That was not how we were going to allow our kids' childhoods to be defined. So you have to make that choice. But I'm asking you, I'm encouraging you to make it consciously. Don't just be swept along because everybody else is getting sucked into these uh, travel leagues. For me to sit here and say we need to take the money out of youth sports is probably naïve. Because there's so many adults making so much money off these kids and the leagues and the tournaments and the showcases and the, and the, uh, and the social media sites, all of that. But if parents banded together, your kid and their kids' friends and their parents, and said, like, I remember when I coached my son's hockey team, I was the assistant coach for a number of years. We would meet with the kids and the parents at the start of the season and say, What do you guys want to do about travel tournaments? And so most years we decide, you know, maybe one or two out of town tournaments for the hockey season, which is from August to usually end of March. And that was it. So that when March came and there's all these other tournaments that would pop up, we were like, eh. we, we said two, we made a conscious decision um, as adults and as kids and as a team. And so we'd follow through with that. You need to do that. You need to let your, your coaches know what you want, as opposed to letting your coaches direct your family. And those coaches are being directed by the leagues and the travel stuff and the showcases and the pressure from colleges, etc. So, you know, put the brakes on. You can do that. You're not the mercy of the coaches and the system. I mentioned a couple of questions at the beginning of this podcast. I'm going to repeat them now as I end. The question was, what's the end goal here? Is childhood supposed to be about getting your kid a college scholarship? What about the part about, you know, growing up, developing social skills, social emotional intelligence, problem solving, street smarts, creativity, learning how to uh, take care of your boredom, learning coping skills. The other question I asked was, when is enough enough? Where is the line? Meaning the number of games, the number of tournaments, the amount of money you're willing to invest, the amount of time and weekends and all that. The other question was, why are we doing this and who is this all about? It's not about kids. A lot of the things we're doing in youth sports is not in their best interest. It's not in the best interest of parents and families, but it definitely is, apparently, in the best interest of business and making money. And we need to stop it. Excuse me, let me uh, step off my soapbox <laughs> to end this podcast. As you can tell, I feel very strongly about the pressure I, I get from girls who are going through this process. By the way, if you're interested in doing some more reading about this, uh, on my show notes, on my website, you know, in the podcast part of the website, uh, I'm going to have uh, three or four articles and a book or two. Uh, some links so you can look at those, read further, get more information, a little bit more detail. Um, I usually uh, come back with a new podcast every week. I'm traveling a lot this, this fall, but I'm, I'm trying to get ahead of the schedule so that I can still put one out. Uh, if you like them, let me know. Uh, you know. Contact me through my website, www.drtimjordan.com. There's also lots of information there about my weekend retreats coming up this fall. We have one for girls in grade school, one for girls in middle school, one for girls in high school. Um, I'll be back here in another week with a new podcast. I appreciate you stopping by every week and also for passing these on. I'll see you back here.